In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, guys, the last month for the Humphrey family has been a time of firsts, and I know I don't even need to tell you that. And doing new things in new places can make you kind of nervous. I got to tell you, leading the, lit- the liturgy solo is almost the pinnacle of nerve-wracking for me. But preaching about Pentecost on Pentecost Sunday had me sweating bullets, y'all. I mean, Pentecost is kind of a big deal. I don't know if you've noticed or not. Today, we're celebrating the birth of Christ's church. We mark this day as the day Christ's kingdom burst onto the world stage and began carrying the light and life of Jesus to some of the darkest places imaginable. But for as big of a deal as Pentecost surely is, like the Ascension, many Christians aren't quite sure what to do with it. In my experience, most churches tend to blush at the mention of Pentecost, and and they end up relegating it to the background. Pentecost is, is pushed to the back burner where it's not in the way, where it makes people feel just a little less awkward. And if you think I'm exaggerating, if if you don't believe that tons of people are uncomfortable with Pentecost, then do me a favor. If you want to do this, please, just strike up a conversation with someone tomorrow and just just toss in a question about Pentecost, see what happens. (laughs) Ask them what they think about it, how they feel about it. Ask a couple of questions about being spirit-filled. But as you ask those questions, pay attention, because their whole demeanor changes, and they start looking for an exit real quick. And believe it or not, I I get that response. I understand why people get a little freaked out by Pentecost. I understand because Pentecost used to freak me out too. Before I was a Christian, here are the things I associated when I heard the word Pentecost. For some reason, Pentecost meant women couldn't wear makeup, but they did have to wear blue jean skirts and their hair in a bun. If If you mentioned Pentecost, I thought you might have snakes at your church. It meant that most likely when you prayed, I wasn't going to understand a word you said, but it surely meant that you ran up and down the aisles at church. That were all the things that I knew about Pentecost. Every single bit of that made me feel uncomfortable. Now, let me be clear. I'm not making fun of our Pentecostal brothers and sisters. I shared all of that to highlight one single point. The name Pentecost can be associated with things that have little or nothing to do with Pentecost itself. And guys, that's a real problem. It's a problem if people push Pentecost away because it seems fringe. It's a problem if the church fails to think about Pentecost in a robust way. It's a problem because Pentecost is not replaceable. Pentecost plays an absolutely crucial role in God's redemption of the world. Without Pentecost, you do not have salvation as we know it. And what I hope to do this morning is to cut through whatever veil shrouds your view of Pentecost. I want you to try to sit aside whatever silly little hang-ups you may have, and I want to engage you about Pente- in a conversation about Pentecost itself. And I think if we're careful this morning, if we're prayerful, I think we can see just how crucial of a role Pentecost actually plays. And I want to start the conversation about Pentecost by asking you to recall just a few things from last Sunday, whenever we were talking about the Ascension. If you remember, last Sunday we said that the Ascension was one of the most overlooked and forgotten celebrations in the church year. The Ascension seemed like nothing more than a background character in the drama of the gospel. People knew that it fit in the story somewhere, but they didn't know actually where, so they just kind of tucked it away far in the background and didn't give it much thought. 
But then we identified what we thought was the root cause of this problem. People pushed the ascension to the background because people weren't sure how the ascension fit with the rest of the gospel. The birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus, those things kind of naturally flow together. Jesus is alive, Jesus is dead, Jesus is alive again. That makes sense chronologically. But when you come to the ascension, no one has any idea what to do with it, how it fits with the pieces that come before. But in a moment of sheer intellectual brilliance, we explained exactly how the ascension fit by using an analogy of an unzipped jacket. <laughs> for, for those who missed it, here's a quick recap of the analogy. Imagine an unzipped jacket. It's split apart, but it is made to be together. This is what the fall did. It split things apart that were made to be united to one another. But if you want to put the jacket back together again, what do you need? You need a zipper. So you begin to bring the zipper down one side of the jacket. This is like the incarnation, the descent of the one who could make things whole again. But if you're going to zip a jacket, you can't go halfway down the jacket, right? No, the zipper needs to go all the way to the bottom. This is like the crucifixion and the death of Jesus, the descent of Jesus to the absolute bottom of a fractured creation. And at the bottom of this jacket, both halves can be reunited in the zipper. And as the zipper rises from the bottom, it leaves in its path a reunion of each side. And where does the ascension fit with that? Well, if you remember, the ascension is when the zipper goes all the way to the top. And everything from the very bottom to the very top have been brought back together. The ascension's place in the gospel story is that it fulfills every single thing that the incarnation started. In the incarnation, the Son descended from heaven and he inhabited earth. That which was spiritual came down to the physical. But in the ascension, this is happening in reverse. The physical, enfleshed Son of God ascended that day and now inhabits the spiritual. Jesus Christ, a real, live, physical human being, walked into heaven that day. The ascension gives us final proof that the physical and spiritual realms are not opposites. Heaven and earth aren't like oil and water. No, the ascension makes it abundantly clear. The spiritual and the physical are actually meant for one another. They complement one another. They can inhabit one another. And there's so many wonderful implications about the ascension, we couldn't name them all if we had all morning. But if you remember, we concluded last week by saying that the ascension, for as beautiful as it was, left some pretty big question marks for us. Questions that need an answer. For instance, how can a Christian say Jesus dwells within them while at the same time believing that Jesus dwells in heaven? It kind of seems like a contradiction, right? If, if Jesus ascended to heaven and sat down at the Father's right hand, then how is he both seated in heaven and seated in your heart? If Christians believe that the resurrected Christ ascended into heaven, but we have no explanation for how the resurrected Christ resides in us, then what kind of gospel do we have? Christians could still believe that Christ was born into a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, that he died on the cross, was raised again on the third day, that he ascended into heaven and is now alive and victorious forevermore. We could believe all of that. 
But if the gospel story stops at the ascension, then we would have no explanation for how life and the victory of Christ might be found in us. But as it turns out, we're in luck. The drama of the gospel doesn't stop with the ascension. Praise God. God continued the story, and in doing so, God answers every single one of those questions we just raised. And the day of Pentecost was the exact day those questions were answered. So how does it fit? How does Pentecost fit within the gospel story? Well, let's jump back just a little bit, okay? This is going to be a habit of mine, you'll, you'll learn. I never stick to the text. On the day of his resurrection, the disciples are huddled together in, a, in an upper room and they have all the doors locked, right? They were terrified that at any minute the Jews were going to come from them. They were going to find them, they were going to arrest them, and they were going to suffer the same exact fate Jesus had. Jesus was dead. He was dead and the disciples had bet every single thing on him. They went all in, Jesus being the Messiah. But now he was gone. For nearly three years, the disciples followed Jesus. And during that time, Jesus made a lot of enemies. He upset a lot of people. But the disciples didn't back down. No, they stayed with Jesus. They counted the enemies of Jesus as their enemies too. The disciples endured being shunned by family and friends, and they lived as outcasts for nearly three years. And they endured it. They endured it because they believed Jesus was who he said he was. The Messiah. For the most part, the disciples were unflinching in their support of Jesus. Unflinching, that is, until men came to arrest him. Then the disciples ran. They abandoned Jesus. Three times Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. The disciples watched as Jesus was arrested, beaten, and then killed. They saw Jesus wrapped in grave linens and then placed in a tomb. And as they sat huddled together in that upper room, they were absolutely positive of one thing. Jesus was dead. But in that locked upper room, all of a sudden, Jesus was in their midst. And what was the very first thing Jesus said to them? Gotcha! No. <laughs> what did he say? What was the very first word Jesus spoke that day? Peace. Who was that? You get an A+. Peace. Jesus spoke peace to them. He didn't begin by recounting their wrongs. He didn't rebuke them for their unbelief. No, his very first words to those sinful, stiff-necked disciples are the same first words he speaks to us today. Peace. Jesus stays with the disciples after this for some, some 40 days, teaching them, explaining to them everything that had happened. But what's curious about this part of the gospel is that even though the disciples are learning at the feet of the resurrected Lord himself, they still seem a little messy, a little, a little confused. They still seem like they're just a little self-centered. There still seems to be something missing, something the disciples still desperately needed. At his ascension, Jesus told the disciples to go and wait for the promise of the Father. And so the disciples did just that. They waited ten days, praying and fasting. And then it happened. On the 50th day after his resurrection, the promise of the Father came. A mighty rushing wind filled the entire house, and everyone in that upper room was filled with the Spirit of God. They were filled with the Spirit in a way that no one had been before. And the effect on the disciples was evident right away. 
Before Pentecost, the disciples fought with each other. They were concerned about position and status. But now, they seem like totally different people. Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 doesn't even sound like the same guy. He's quoting the book of Joel and Psalms. He's explaining the death and the resurrection of, of Jesus and his ascension. He's calling people to repentance. He's sharing the good news of Jesus. Who is this guy? This is like Peter 2.0 or something, right? And the coming of the Spirit on that Pentecost day is the only explanation why. And there's a lot we could say about that Pentecost day. There's a thousand things I've left out that I wish I had time to cover, but I don't. I have time to add just one more thing. It's true. Pentecost is a day that happened some 2,000 years ago. That is true. But it's also true that Pentecost isn't just a day in the past. Pentecost isn't like D-Day or the 4th of July. No, Pentecost has its beginnings in the past, but Pentecost is a daily reality that stretches from that day to this. Day by day, Hour by hour, Christ is offering himself to the world. He's offering himself to you. And what God offers you in Pentecost is a chance for heaven and earth to be reunited in you as well. Pentecost is when all that Jesus has, all that he won, all that belongs to him is given to you by his spirit. What's his is now yours. What's yours is now his. And Jesus doesn't seem to mind that he gets the short end of the stick in that deal. He knows you. He knows me. He knows just how broken we really are. And he offers to take us into himself anyway. He offers to take our sin, our shame, our self-centeredness and conceit. He offers to take our pride and arrogance. He even offers to take our very death and make them all his own. And what he offers in you in return is his peace. He offers you forgiveness in life everlasting. By the Spirit, Pentecost is when Jesus offers you himself. And when the Spirit descends upon you and fills you with the life of God, you become a little I incarnation. You are a mortal human that bears the very image of likeness of God. Christ calls you to follow him, to live by the Spirit, and to take up your crosses and prepare to die. This is our own crucifixion. And death is something that will come for every single one of us. Even Jesus found this to be true. But can I tell you, the grave will not hold on to those who belong to Jesus because the grave could not hold on to Jesus himself. And someday in the future, the Lord will call us out of those graves, our own resurrection. And the Lord will call those whom he has resurrected up into the air, our own ascension. And when the resurrected, ascended, and spirit-filled Christians meet the Lord in the air, we meet the one to whom we are betrothed. As a bride is wedded to her groom, so we shall be wedded to the Son, and we will be heirs of his Father's eternal kingdom. Guys, there is no story in the world like this. There is nothing in the entire world that's this beautiful, nothing this profound and deep. There is no other story truer than this one. And that makes the story of Pentecost, the story of the Spirit-filled Christian, truly good news indeed. I hope 
this morning that you've seen the beauty of our gospel. But more than that, I hope this morning that you leave with a renewed desire to love and know Jesus in a deeply intimate way. He loves you. He's made you for himself, and he calls you this day to come home to him. Will we respond? I pray that we will. Amen.